Good morning, Alex and friends. I'm Grace. Today is Monday, February 26, 2024, and you're listening to Alex's News. Turning our attention to today's weather, the high in Riverside on this fine February 26, 2024, is expected to grace the thermometers at a comfortable 64.9 degrees, while the evening promises a cooler turn with lows settling at 53.5. In today's top stories, we'll delve into the showdown between political pundits as Jon Stewart and Tucker Carlson spar in a mix of humor and heated debate, embodying the latest chapter in the tale of political comedy and critique. For our tech-savvy listeners, we'll investigate AT&T's response to their recent network outage, a modest offering of a $5 credit to affected customers, shining a light on the ever-growing necessity of staunch and steadfast network infrastructure vital for our public safety. Lastly, we'll travel to Kaiser, WV, a coal-rich town now swirling in the winds of change. As they pivot towards renewable energy, we'll explore the challenges and opportunities that this transition presents for the community and the broader implications for the nation's energy landscape. Join us as we unpack these compelling stories on Alex's News. Turning now to our top story of the day, we're bringing in Ethan who's been following the latest developments in what's become a pointed interaction between two familiar figures in the world of political commentary. Jon Stewart made a return to The Daily Show, stirring the pot with some sharp criticism aimed at Tucker Carlson's recent interview with Vladimir Putin. Ethan, what can you tell us about Stewart's concerns here? Good morning, Grace. Yes, Jon Stewart is making headlines with his critique of Tucker Carlson's journalistic approach in his interview with Putin. Stewart is essentially accusing Carlson of failing to hold Putin to account on critical issues about Russia's politics and human rights, namely the treatment and alleged poisoning of opposition figure Alexei Navalny. It sounds like Stewart is questioning more than just Carlson's interview technique. What is he getting at with his critique concerning geopolitical implications? Indeed, Grace. Stewart is raising a red flag over what he sees as Carlson's propagation of narratives that might play into the hands of those traditionally seen as adversaries to U.S. interests. He appears to be suggesting that Carlson's portrayal of Russia could downplay the harsh realities of Putin's regime and its actions, potentially influencing viewers' perceptions in ways that may not completely align with the broader global context. Now, isn't there a history between Jon Stewart and Tucker Carlson that predates this particular disagreement? Very much so. If we cast our minds back to 2004, Stewart famously appeared on CNN's Crossfire, where he chastised the show, co-hosted at the time by Carlson, for fostering political discord over productive debate. Stewart's criticisms were sharp and had substantial outcomes, they contributed notably to the cancellation of Crossfire, and ended Carlson's contract with CNN. That's intriguing. Can you expand on the potential consequences of Stewart's comments now? Could they have a similar impact on the media landscape as they did back then? Well, it's hard to speculate with certainty, Grace, but Stewart's voice has shown it carries weight. His current criticisms of Carlson could spark renewed scrutiny on how political shows and their hosts handle content, particularly interviews with high-profile figures like Putin. The idea is that there might be a ripple effect that encourages audiences and other media personalities to demand a higher standard of political discourse and integrity in journalism. With all the complexities of media ethics and political commentary at play here, do you think comedians like Jon Stewart have a role in shaping public discourse as much as journalists like Carlson? 
It's an insightful question. Comedy and satire have long been tools for critical commentary and can indeed shape public discourse significantly. Comedians like Stewart manage to tackle complex issues with a blend of humor and scrutiny, potentially reaching audiences in ways traditional reporting may not. They hold a unique position to call out what they perceive as media missteps, and Stewart's track record certainly suggests his voice resonates with many. Ethan, thank you for your thorough analysis. It'll be interesting to see how this story develops. My pleasure, Grace. Always good to discuss these significant media narratives. Stay with us for more news after the break, as we discuss story two of three for today. We're turning now to a story that affected thousands of cell phone users across several states. AT&T customers experienced a significant outage last week, and the company has just announced they'll be offering a $5 credit to those impacted. Chloe, can you fill us in on the recent developments? Sure, Grace. This outage left many AT&T customers without service for several hours, disrupting their daily activities. Users couldn't make calls or use data services, and, importantly, many were unable to dial emergency services like 911. In response to this inconvenience, AT&T will be giving a $5 credit but, there's an important note for some customers, isn't there? Yes, some customers won't be eligible for this credit, correct? That's right. The credit does not apply to AT&T business accounts, prepaid services, or to those using Cricket. Those prepaid customers who were impacted will be offered some form of compensation, but AT&T hasn't provided any specifics yet. And what was behind this network outage, Chloe? Some sort of foul play or... The good news here is that it wasn't a cyber attack, as some might have feared. AT&T stated that a coding error was the culprit behind the service disruption. These technical issues, while not necessarily malicious, have real implications for customers relying on their services. Speaking of implications, in what ways did this outage affect public safety? This is where the outage becomes more than just an inconvenience, Grace. In several states, including California, North Carolina, Virginia, and Texas, people found themselves unable to contact emergency services. Law enforcement and fire departments had to put out notices on social media, giving alternative contact methods for reaching first responders. That must have caused some serious concern. What does it say about our dependence on these networks? It underscores just how vital our communication infrastructure is, especially in emergencies. An outage can lead to delays in emergency response, potentially putting lives at risk. That's why it's crucial for networks to not only be robust but also have contingencies in place. And what usually causes these outages? Is it something AT&T and other providers can prevent? A variety of factors can lead to outages, software misconfigurations, hardware failures, even accidental damage during construction. In this case, flawed coding was to blame. While not all outages can be prevented, rigorous testing and backup systems can significantly reduce their likelihood and impact. Definitely a situation to watch, to ensure measures are put in place to improve reliability. Thank you, Chloe, for that comprehensive update on the AT&T ordeal. You're welcome, Grace. Let's all hope service providers are taking notes and stepping up their preparedness efforts. Here are some other headlines. In brief, here's the latest on the impeachment process involving Alejandro Mayorkas, the United States Secretary of Homeland Security, on February 15, 2024. 
The House passed 214 to 213 to impeach Mayorkas on two articles of impeachment. This decision came after an earlier vote on February 6, where the measure failed 214 to 216. The last time a cabinet secretary was impeached was Secretary of War William Belknap in 1876 due to corruption allegations. Mayorkas is the first sitting cabinet official to be impeached, although he resigned right before his confirmation vote, which raised historical precedential concerns. After the House vote, the issue moved to the Senate, where Democrats maintain a thin majority. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer indicated that the Senate would commence the trial upon returning from recess on February 26. A crucial aspect is whether Democrats will invoke any elements such as avoiding procedural obstacles or spearheading a prompt process for the trial. The procedure includes senators swearing in as jurors when the trial starts. Schumer stated that House impeachment managers will bring the charges immediately, with the trial continuing from there. An active duty member of the U.S. Air Force, identified as Aaron Bushnell, set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., on Sunday, in what appears to be a protest against Israel's involvement in the ongoing conflict with Gaza. Bushnell sustained critical, life-threatening injuries and was transported to a hospital. The event occurred on February 26, 2024. Here are the key points to understand from your search results. 1. Michigan's presidential primary is the final major race before Super Tuesday. 2. The race in Michigan is an assessment of President Joe Biden's ability to navigate dissent, particularly in relation to his stance on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 3. Democratic primary voters in Michigan have the option to select uncommitted as a sign of dissatisfaction. 4. Internal struggles in the Michigan Republican Party involve power dynamics and potential splits that could affect campaign momentum. Following a resounding defeat in the South Carolina primary, Nikki Haley, a Republican candidate for the presidency, defied calls within South Carolina Republicans to withdraw and decided to pursue her campaign in Michigan. Turning to story three, we're seeing a major shift in a place known for its coal mining roots. The town of Kaiser, West Virginia is now facing an energy transformation, as wind turbines rise up where coal mines once dominated the landscape. Joining us with more details on this story is Ethan, our specialist correspondent. Ethan, can you give us an introduction to what's happening in Kaiser right now? Certainly, Grace. Kaiser is at a crossroads of sorts. For generations, this town has been deeply intertwined with coal mining, but as the industry has declined, these iconic symbols of coal's dominance are being replaced by the sleek blades of wind turbines. Residents like Sheila Wagoner, who've known nothing but coal, are finding themselves in the midst of an energy evolution. It's a profound change for this community. It sounds like a significant cultural shift. Mayor Damon Tillman spoke about Kaiser's coal mining heritage. How is the town dealing with this transition on an economic level? Mayor Tillman underscores a mix of pride and skepticism. There's a real concern that while renewable energy is the way forward, the immediate benefits might not make their way to smaller towns like Kaiser. Instead, he fears that larger cities might garner the lion's share of investment. Plus, the local economy has been so reliant on energy production historically that there's worry over what future jobs might look like. With West Virginia's political climate leaning conservatively, how does this transition towards renewable energy square with the state's history and politics? It's a complex paradox. 
There's staunch support for coal owing to its deep-rooted history in the state, yet there's also the recognition that coal is unlikely to rebound to its former glory. West Virginia faces a challenge in balancing conservative values and the economic reality of a declining coal industry. Misconceptions persist about renewables being the culprits for coal's downturn, despite other factors such as automation and competition from natural gas. The Biden administration's push for a just transition has been in the headlines. How is that playing out in practical terms for workers in Kaiser? The just transition aims to help fossil fuel workers pivot to jobs in renewables, yet it has not been a silver bullet. Studies indicate most of these workers don't find new roles in the renewable sector. This is where the importance of training programs comes into play, like the wind energy program at the local community college. Such initiatives are crucial for equipping Kaiser's workforce with the skills they need for these new industries. Let's talk economics. What are the potential benefits Kaiser could see from these wind farms? If done right, wind farms can be a boon. They can provide jobs during construction and offer ongoing employment for maintenance and operations. They also generate tax revenue and can stabilize the power grid, which can lead to energy cost savings over time. Plus, owning companies often establish community benefit funds to support local projects. And what about the environmental impact of this energy transition? That's an important aspect, Grace. Wind farms do present challenges for local ecosystems, bird and bat fatalities being one of the most visible concerns. There's also the matter of habitat disruption. Mitigation strategies like curtailment during migration seasons, implementing monitoring systems, and careful planning of the turbine sites are all necessary steps. Thank you, Ethan, for that comprehensive look at the changes facing Kaiser and the broader implications for towns like it. It's clear there's a lot to ponder as we move towards these new energy horizons. My pleasure, Grace. It's definitely a story we'll continue to watch closely as these communities navigate through the shifts in the energy landscape. That's all we have for now. Today's episode was made by Alexander King with GPT-4 Turbo. GPT-3.5 Turbo. The Perplexity API. And the Google Cloud Text-to-Speech API. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow, Alex.